Welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki. And you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So Uri, I actually got a lot of really positive feedback on our Shoshana Keats Jasko episode last week. Yeah, same. Um, yeah, like I found a lot of people who didn't know so much about her, about her background, and found her really inspiring, and just thought it was really cool that she was doing like such interesting and important work, and uh, it was exciting to be able to to be able to kind of like hear from someone who's doing something so kind of awe-inspiring. Yeah, and I also was impressed how like she was just going like a mile a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was coming from one thing and going yeah. to something else right afterwards and she just like going through her talking points. And yeah. then... I re-listened to the episode this morning and I remember thinking to myself like I always listen on double speed and I was like, wow, like I have never listened to someone on double speed who I felt like, speaks faster down. than I speak on double speed. Uh-huh. Like it was like really like impressive to listen to, but I, I loved it. Yeah, it was a fun conversation. And uh, Uri, for all you listeners who didn't see, we posted a pretty exciting picture this weekend on the Talking Tachas Facebook page with uh, Uri and one of our most popular guests ever, Johnny Miller. Yeah, that was uh, Sunday night in Long Island at Nassau Coliseum. What were you doing there? Um, I was seeing the band Fish. Fish. Oh, Fish. Heard of it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Johnny Miller's uh, one of his expertise. I didn't go with him, but I saw him there and I said hi and we took a picture and posted it to the podcast Facebook page, which was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, it was a great show. Um, they actually played Avinu Malkenu. Which we talked about which we in talked our about Fish episode. On that episode. Congra- is this your first time? I've never heard them play it live. Wow. It was very, very Congratulations. exciting. Thank you. Yeah. That is really cool. It was actually pretty unexpected because there's usually a few years in between appearances of uh-huh. this song, at least based on the pattern that's been going for <laughs> the last the blogs. 15, 20 years. No, meaning like based on how many yeah, yeah, times yeah. they played it. And they actually just played it six shows ago in the summer. Oh. Um, so I, in my head, I was like, there's no chance. And I wasn't mm-hmm. at that show. I was in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So they started playing it and I was kind of in shock. It was very exciting. But I was also thinking while they were playing it, I was thinking about something that you said actually on the podcast that we talked about fish. And then a couple of people also said after that episode, which is that it's cool that they're playing, that they play this Jewish song in in Hebrew and two of the band members are Jewish, but like not that song, like that song, I don't even want to call it a song. Avina Malkenu is like such a holy, um, somber um, prayer. It's very intense. And it comes at, you know, at at intense times of the year, Yom Kippur and fast days. And they sort of like jazz it up a little bit. And it sounds like to some people sounds a little inappropriate. And I was thinking about that. And I think just because I feel like I know them, even though I don't really know them, <laughs> yeah, but I feel course. like I know them. And I feel like they're such... They're West Siders together. I know them as people, right? Trey is my neighbor. <laughs> I do think it's coming from a place of reverence. It's definitely not coming from a place of mockery or anything like that. Uh-huh. But actually, Rifki, one of the things that I was thinking as the song was being played, and it's actually not a very long song, especially mm-hmm. by Fish standards. It's very short, so I didn't have that <laughs> no much time to think. No jams in the middle. Yeah, no jams. Uh, well, actually, there is a short jam. But... Um, <laughs> I was thinking that, yes, this is a very reverent and somber um, prayer that I could see if very fairly somebody saying this is not appropriate right. to do it at a rock concert. Um, but at the same time, the words themselves are very humbling. We're talking about recognizing that God is our king, our father, and we have no deeds to show for ourselves. Like, it's funny, like a lot of music, pop music, whatever, is all about self-aggrandizement. Right, right, right. Even ironically, it to be funny, whatever, but it's all about talking yourself up. And this song, I don't want to read too much into it, but it's all about saying, I- I'm nothing. I-, I, have- I have to rely on-, on God to save me. Please forgive me for, for my sins, whatever. Um, I think that's like a just like a nice message. And if anybody would like look up the lyrics afterwards, like I can, I can only see, uh, you know, positive things coming from that. So, uh, you know, I thought it was pretty cool. Uh-huh. 
Well, that's that's a nice way to to put it. You know, there's also something a little bit interesting, and I don't know if this is a good or bad thing, but I'm thinking about it in terms of like, uh, you know, we just entered the month of Kislev, which is the the Jewish month that Hanukkah is in. And Hanukkah is like, you know, very exciting holiday. We talked about Hanukkah on the podcast before, but Hanukkah is also a holiday that in some ways kind of warns us to stay away from secular culture a little bit, Mm -hmm. like Hellenism. And wow, this actually really ties into this week's episode. But um, I think that's also kind of interesting. Like, I'm wondering if this is a model for the good kind of right. mixing with secular culture or maybe the negative side? Uh, well, that also gets know. into today's discussion about, mm-hmm. you know, what does it mean to be modern Orthodox, to be in the world, but also to retain our traditions and our Jewishness? And what happens when those two worlds blend with each other? I wouldn't necessarily call this a clash. This is this is more of like an overlap of right. some kind. It doesn't kind. have to be a clash. Right. It's an interesting point, something to think about for sure. I also wonder if they specifically played it at that show because they were in Long Island and there's a lot of Jews there, maybe even more than at the typical Fish concert. But it was a lot of fun and I'm glad I got to hear it. I'm really happy And it was great you. seeing Johnny. Shout yeah. out to Johnny Miller. So that's actually just a great transition. Let's dive into this week's topic. Um, before we begin, Uri, though, let's let's talk about sort of the story or the event that led up to this episode. A few weeks ago, we reached out to Rabbi Stephen Prusansky about possibly coming on Talking Tachlis. Now, if you don't know who that is, a little bit of background. Rabbi Prusansky is a congregational rabbi in Teaneck, who is also well known for having a pretty uh, fiery and opinionated blog about both Torah and contemporary issues like politics and culture. Anyway, Rabbi Przansky considered the offer, but ended up declining to join the podcast because he found that the focus on the, quote, exchange of feelings, end quote, wasn't really his style, which is, you know, fair, people, different strokes. Good for him. He was kind of like self-aware. Like he's like, I don't even, I can't speak speak that that language. language, And then this past Saturday night, we were told by Talking Talkless listeners that in his drusha this past Shabbat morning, Rabbi Przansky actually mentioned our podcast, not by name, unfortunately, but he shared this story and he shared it in kind of a funny context about, um, obviously it was related to the Parsha, but in, in like a very succinct way, it was kind of bemoaning how millennials seem to overly focus on feelings. And I guess that's something that uh, that Uri, we, we are those millennials who, who focus on our feelings. Uh, speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Which we found funny, especially because we were already planning on discussing a recent Rabbi Przansky article. So we reached out again after hearing about this, and then we actually just had recently this week an interesting conversation where we discussed some of these issues off the record with him. And ultimately, we still hope to speak with him on the podcast. So Uri, this week, let's try not to get too overly emotional. I so that we can uh, down the emotions. Okay, good, good, good. Um, so hopefully, Representsky, if you're listening, we would really like to have you for a future episode. We really want to continue this conversation. So this recent article published on his blog and also in the New Jersey Jewish Link is entitled... The First Modern Orthodox Jew, Two Models. In this article, Rabbi Przansky talks about what we can learn from Abraham, the father of monotheism and Judaism, and his wayward nephew, who grew up in his home, Lot. 
It's a long piece, and as always, we encourage you to read it yourself. But here are some excerpts, and this is going to be a little bit long because we really want you to get a, a, a flavor of what he's talking about. And Uri, you're going to read the pieces mm. from the article, so try to do Robert Przanski's voice justice. So this is how Robert Przanski defines the first model. One individual grew up in a religious home, so punctilious in its observance of mitzvot and sensitivity to others that he felt stultified. So he moved to the big bad city and became so respected there that he was elevated to leadership, notwithstanding the depravity of the place. He felt better about himself, even tried to maintain some of the observances that he had practiced in his family home. Ultimately, he was spared his city's fate not because of any personal qualities he possessed, but solely because of the merit of the home he rejected. That person was Lot. And then Rebrzezanski goes on to paint Lot with analogies to contemporary culture. Our sages pointed out Lot's moral complexities. He came to Sodom, tried to blend in, and eventually rose to prominence. He was appointed a judge in that immoral gutter, meaning he acculturated himself, probably attending college and law school there. Likely, he attended class on Shabbat, but without writing or otherwise breaching a Shabbat stricture, and willfully absorbed all the heresy, mockery of religion, and defiance of the fundamental moral norms with which he was raised, and he thought it did not affect him because he was on the kosher meal plan. He learned from the scholarly professors at the University of Sodom that God doesn't exist and that his Bible and moral laws were man-made, and Lot then must have pitied his poor old uncle, who actually believed in God and his laws and comported himself accordingly. He was so at home in Sodom and so comfortable with his dual life that he saw no contradiction in his lifestyle and was unaware of any compromises he had made. Spiritually, he was content, but morally, he was bankrupt, and worse, he didn't even know it. He thought he had made it, when in fact he was plunging headlong to his own destruction. Was Lot the first modern Orthodox Jew? He kept what he kept, nothing more, and resented being judged. He felt that his immersion in the local culture was permissible as long as he committed no overt sins and thus rationalized his conduct as still faithful to his upbringing. Ideology, and especially values, were secondary to the technical performances that he, for the most part, still observed. And of course, he lived in a place where there was no moral authority. Indeed, he fled Avraham's home only because he did not like to be told what to do. He doubtless answered any halachic questions he had by scouring the internet for the psaq that he wanted. To the world of Avraham, then and there, he was lost. That is one model of modern orthodoxy. There are many who indulge in modern society and embrace its values, first thinking that the immoral norms do not affect them, and later that those same norms must be part of the world of Torah, because after all, they profess them. They remain ritually connected, for the most part, and take pride in their children's accomplishments, even if they are conjoined with an abandonment of Torah commitment. It is enough that they observe, or try to observe, a ritual or two, even though their minds, hearts, values, and life's interests are elsewhere, far removed from the world of God, Torah, mitzvot, Israel, and Jewish destiny. It suffices that they are good people. That model is not unfamiliar to us, and it is unsustainable. But Rev. Przanski continues that that's only one model, and not all of us are Lot. We can also see the positive model of Abraham, who was also integrated into the world, but was smarter about creating boundaries. Avraham participated in his society, but he also knew when he had to segregate himself, when he had to keep his distance, even when he had to sequester himself from them, lest their deviances affect himself and his family. Avraham knew the secret of Jewish life in the exile how to be part of society while still remaining apart from it. That is the real test of our lives. 
Modern orthodoxy, as it is understood today, and as the reports from the field filter in, is struggling and in some arenas floundering because it has failed that test and lost that balance, either rejecting any good about the world at large and cloistering itself within the proverbial four walls, or tacking its sails to every cultural wind and construing every modern value, i.e., every modern value, without distinction or analysis, as admirable, laudable, and worthy of embrace, even if they conflict with or negate basic Torah principles. So, Uri, beautiful. There's a lot to unpack here. And in discussing this topic, Uri, you and I have already had a hard time kind of figuring out how best to structure this. Because on the one hand, we really want to discuss this specific piece, its merits and the questions that it leaves us with, etc. And we don't want to make this a discussion about Rabbi Przanski, the person. But on the other hand, we can't speak about this in a vacuum and pretend that the person who wrote this and wrote many other things exists, and that who he is is a real part of what he says. So as much as possible, we're going to try to balance these things and hopefully come out with something coherent. Uh, And as always, of course, listeners, please be in touch and tell us how you think we do. So Uri, here's my first instinct. Here are some questions that I have. First of all, I'm just curious, like, do you agree with his assessment, right? Probably, presumably you agree with some things, don't agree with others, but like, let's let's kind of like get into that a little bit. Uh, Do you think that the failure of modern orthodoxy is when we aren't careful about putting up walls and that Avraham should be our guide for how to keep distance as opposed to Lot? Secondly, and maybe this is a more complicated question, one of the criticisms that I've heard and that I've agreed with over the years is that the problem with Rebbe Przanski's articles and posts is generally less about his ideas and much more about his tone and his approach. Sorry, that, that might come dangerously close to feelings. But um, I guess, Uri, how do you think this piece feels to you? Yeah, that's a trick question. It's tough. I mean, the tone is obviously very harsh. I, I personally wouldn't have written it that way. I definitely don't think he's saying that every Orthodox Jew who goes to secular college has that experience. That is one type of experience. And I think there's a lot of truth to what he's saying, whether people want to acknowledge that or not. The tone is very harsh. It's it's very musery. It's, it's, it's a rebuke. It might not be for everybody. People could say it's not his place. It's inappropriate for him to say it that way. Okay, fine, maybe. I think there are very few voices out there like that. And maybe there's a need for that on some level. In terms of what it means to be modern Orthodox and in the in the secular world, but also Jewish. I mean, Rybrzezanski quotes this line from last week's parcha. He says he writes it in English, but I think what he was quoting was when Avraham is looking for a burial plot for Sarah, and he's talking to the Hittites, the Chitim. He says, "Ger v'toshav anochi imachem," which is an oxymoron. I'm a stranger and a resident with right. you, and so. That is, I don't know if the shot is that is he's, that's what he means, but that's how it's taken. That's our challenge. That's a paradox of being modern Orthodox, maybe just being a Jew in the world, is that we do want to engage with the world and we want to take the genuine value that the world has to offer, that secular knowledge and wisdom and society has to offer, but we have to retain our values and our, our traditions, or, or at least you know those of us who want to have to do that. And that's basically all he's saying. And he's saying, and Rybrzezanski is saying, that could be done right or it could be done wrong, and sometimes people take it too far. And yes, it's harsh, and, and people's feelings might be hurt by it. And I think that's understandable, and I also understand why someone would say, so then don't read his articles. Don't read his blog if you know you're going to be upset by it. You know, I saw a lot of people online where, or not a lot, I saw some people online um, were upset about this blog. And it's, I think that's silly because I think those people went to his blog in order to get upset. And that is, 
you know, kind of came up in our conversation with him. But I, I, I agree on that, actually, about cancel culture and people just looking for villains, looking for somebody to cancel, looking for somebody to be angry at, as opposed to saying, I don't agree with, with the way this rabbi speaks or writes, so I'm not going to listen to his sermons. I'm not going to read his blog. You know, I mean, so I, I wasn't offended. I didn't really understand why people were so upset about it. But Rifki, mm-hmm. what did you think? I just, I, it's funny. The first thing that I was thinking as you were speaking was a friend of mine uh, in a discussion that I was having with a bunch of friends about this particular post, um, one of the things he asked is like, um, what audience Ray Brzezinski is trying to reach? When he writes things like this, like who is he trying to impact or is he trying to impact people? Like what's the purpose of writing this? And he kind of created a couple of categories of people who read his blog. And he said, A, um, this is your friend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. This, this is a friend of mine, Josh, listener. Hello, Josh. He said, oh, so you think everyone who follows his blog is just A, hate reading or B, reading to keep up with the hawk or C, people are reading him to feel good about themselves that they are not bad like those other people are bad. And those are the categories. Obviously, there might be more categories, whatever. But I actually thought that was like a really clear articulation to just break that down a little bit. Hate reading which is what you kind of said. Right. I think there are a lot of people who do that because they... People who are looking to get upset. Yeah. Well, not, they're not looking to get upset. They're looking to they see... They know they're going to oh, get upset. What's he, what did he write now? <laughs> yeah, you know, okay. like, what did he say? And they, they know they're going to get angry. They know they're going to get frustrated. But there's something kind of righteous in that that keeps drawing them back. It's kind of like... Twitter, you know, okay. they're just the cesspool you keep getting drawn to. Um, or reading to keep up with the hawk. There's also those people, right, who are just like, ooh, this is going to come up at a Shabbos table. He posted mm-hmm. something. I'm sure it's juicy. I got to check it I out. I can relate to that. Yeah. Uh, and the third group of people, which I think actually is the most dangerous group of people in a certain way, is people who read Musser, right, read sort of this idea of criticizing people for being the wrong way and trying to encourage them to be better, reading Musser for the sake of saying, oh, those other people, those are so bad. I hope they're reading this. I'm not bad like them. And I think that to me what is what feels a little bit concerning sometimes about the way Rabbi Prusansky writes. Because I, I agree with you that ultimately, I think his fundamental argument of like, hey, we need to be able to have boundaries about the outside world and we need to be smart about which values we want to incorporate into our own lives and which values we actually think are like kind of dangerous and could be detrimental to our spiritual or moral lives. That is... I fundamentally agree with that. And I also tend to be harif in these ways, in, in ways that maybe I don't love about myself, but I'm also a little bit of a harif person. But the danger is that I don't think that people reading this are saying to themselves, that's me. Like, that's something that I have to struggle with. I think too often, and I think, honestly, every time I've ever spoken to anyone who's read something that Robert Brzezinski has written in a like one of his, not one of his like political things. I'm just talking about his muster things. I don't think I've ever spoken to someone who was like, it really made me think. I, um, I, I don't know if that's, so yeah, many, I hear I mean, what you're ha- saying. Have you? Have, I, I don't know if that's a completely fair assessment because I think what Josh was trying to say was that that third category is preaching to the choir. Is that, what do you think it is or is it something else? Um, it's preaching to the choir in an explicit way of calling out other groups. Well, it's because, not preaching yeah. to the choir saying like, oh, you should keep Shabbos and everyone's but like, it's oh not, good, it's I do. it's not other groups because he's talking about sending kids to secular college and that is something that I think people in Teaneck can very much relate to. Do you think that he's speaking to people who are then going to say to themselves 
you know what? I maybe do make the wrong decision sometimes. I'm going to uh, it's send a se- my kids separate, to a different yeah, school. Separate conversation like, if he's convincing anybody. Probably no, 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 not, but I don't I, think anybody really but convinces I, I people. I do think it's a related conversation. Well, my, my, right. My point is this is not a, this particular case is not really that far in. To, let's say people, maybe a category of what you're saying is somebody who sent their children to YU will read this and say like, oh, see, I, I say these things yes. all the time, how dangerous secular um, colleges are, whether it's, he didn't even mention Israel. That's like a whole other thing. Um, but just in terms of morality and anti-Israel stuff on on, on campus but he's talking about like moralities and values and stuff and so there are definitely a lot of people who read this and like oh now I feel even better about myself that I did not send my kids to secular college but maybe people who did send some kids maybe all their kids or some went to YU some didn't some went whatever it is and will see that and say he's being very harsh and he's being very judgmental but like there is something to what he's saying I mean that's just to me, it's what's also annoying about some of these reactions is that I will concede that his tone is very harsh and that doesn't work for everybody, but that doesn't mean that he's not making any important points. And maybe he's making points that other people are scared to make in that explicit of a way, um, but that we don't, most of us who, who would identify as Orthodox or modern Orthodox wouldn't really disagree with. It's almost an uncomfortable truth, an uncomfortable reality, and it's a lot easier to ridicule and dismiss him completely instead of actually addressing the points that he's making, even if you don't like the way that he says it. I'll, I'll give you one example. Somebody that I heard um, was criticizing this article that came up over Shabbos, and somebody said that you know, he meant, we didn't read this part of it, but he's talking about load, like uh, in, in University of Sodom, and he goes to the frat party on Friday night, but he has his friend who isn't Jewish pay for his admission into the party. And then this person who was criticizing Robert Brzezinski said, oh, does it, he does, he's so out of touch, he doesn't even know that you don't pay for frat parties, you just go to them. And first of all, I mean, I didn't go to any frat parties in college, so I don't really know, but I think there probably are some that you pay for, but that's really not the point. The point is that, like, there are people who are just looking to find fault in his thing because they don't like him. Maybe it's chicken and egg because they have, he said other things that were more concretely problematic to them. Um, But I think it's just silly to go read this article for somebody that you really don't like or always disagree with, and then you're going to nitpick because he doesn't know how frat parties work. I think it's just silly. I, I, I don't think that's fair. I think, first of all, I think the idea, if someone actually doesn't understand what's going on at secular college and they're criticizing secular college, then like that is an important like critique of their argument. Um, I, I don't know enough about frat parties. I mean, obviously they're, they're different since I was in school. Plus like I was never cool enough to go to parties. Plus I do agree that I think some frat parties you do have to pay for. I actually don't really know how this works. We have to look into this. <laughs> Guys, that's why we are podcast hosts. Um, but I think ultimately sometimes the reason, like at least I, I can speak for myself, like sometimes when I read something and I'm feeling incredibly uncomfortable or frustrated, it's hard for me to immediately pin down exactly what I'm finding the issue is. So sometimes I'll grab on something that I'm like, oh, and, and another, he, he doesn't even right. get to talk about it because like he, this is like, obviously wrong and that kind of like it's not because that's the only argument I have right it's because like that's what's coming to me at the at a time when I'm feeling kind of like almost like blood rushing to my head like I mean well, I, so I don't what know upset you so much about okay so, so there there are a couple of things I think first of all and and again I, I want to be clear like I I was upset by it but also especially even Uri as you so eloquently read it again uh just now like I also saw parts of myself in it so like when I'm upset with the article parts of it I'm also sort of like upset with my own harifness in this world you but, saw like, yourself as the load or as the one calling out I saw load. myself as the Rebbe Prusansky in uh-huh. a certain yeah. way like uh-huh. I'm sort of like no there's like 
like extremes. We're getting into right hardcore feelings right now. Freudian. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so sorry. No, but like, you know, I think even like we've talked uh, about, um, we've talked about alcohol and we've talked about, like, like I, I'm like an, an like an, I believe yeah, in boundaries follower. a lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I believe that like, so when like, I'm just not comfortable with certain things. And right. I think like that this is, I think to me is like an example of it. But I think fundamentally his case I don't think it's so crazy, but I thought the examples were both egregiously offensive and were not true. Sort of the, the case that he's making of sort of like, oh, um, okay, how can we bring Lot into the 21st century? Oh, I know how we can bring Lot to like a contemporary example of modern orthodoxy. Lot is um, the 20-year-old who goes to Minion every morning, right? He engages in prayer every single day, but he goes to college football games on Shabbat. Like, where did he get that from? Like, what's his evidence of that? It's obviously like, a straw man, right? It, but it's it's also I totally thought he was false. actually like, kind of generous to Lot uh, as the metaphor right, to the college like, student. Like, he's he says he's, he davens at least once a day. He 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 scours the internet for a psak that right. fits his thing, but he's looking for a psak. Like, right. he this he's not so bad, right? But I mean, the Lot of the text, right? The Lot of the text, he does like engage in trying to bring in guests, right? But like, right. He it does is a all very interesting like, and Lot is a, is a example. complex character, right. the same way we today are complex characters. But I think where he, he he's making that up, meaning like. Like, I think in general, midrash is meant to be, a, and what he's doing in some ways is almost like a midrash, right? Like it's a midrash well, it's on the text. And right, he's really course. just critiquing secular college. Right, and he's the using it as like a pretense in some way. There. The same way, by the way, midrash often can, was used as to a pretense to, to talk okay. about culture. But ideally, I think midrash, not ideally, I think um, midrash is meant to really emerge from Torah. And he's using this Torah idea as a way to criticize people today. And I, I, I found that to be really like upsetting. And I felt like there was no grounding well, Isn't for that it. the point of the Torah, to make it contemporary, to make it relevant to our lives? A hundred percent. And what the Torah does really well with Lot is show that he's a complex figure. What Ray Przansky does really well with a 21st century of Lot is say, he's actually a really awful guy. You think it's complex, but actually it's not. He's crap. Well, I don't think he was saying he's so awful. He's, he's a failure. He's not someone to look up to but he's not there's like, plenty of worse people in the Torah but, but that's a really extreme yeah, true congratulations <laughs> but that's a really extreme thing to say right he said like he basically is cast yes he's saved from stone but he's cast out of Jewish history he happens to be dragged back by Amon Amoah but that's not even due to any of anything good about him like he's a failure like exactly as you said and I, what also upsets me about this is this is actually similar to discussions that we've had about other things, right? Like, uh, like the CRC. You remember the CRC letter that we had that we discussed about um about weed becoming legal in Chicago, right. and they were basically like, oh. Uh, totally usser. And I think that this is an example, like, I like Musser. I like when rabbis kind of like try to speak to people and use Torah on their level as a way to say like, hey, we can all be better. And if he's trying to use Lot as someone who has had moral failings and continues to have moral failings, I'm totally down with that. I think that's like a really practical and useful thing for a pulpit rabbi and for a rabbi with a wide following and a wide readership like he does to say things like that. But there are other problems with contemporary society that are both more troubling and are more likely to actually have an impact on the people reading it. Because like, as you said before, I don't, or, or as I said, and maybe you agree or maybe you disagree, I don't think that people reading what he said on just now are, are actually going to stop and 
take stock of their own lives and think about things differently. And that's the point of Musser. The point of Musser isn't to tell people they're doing something wrong. The point of Musser is to help people become better. And if you're not actually helping people, then what's the point? You're just yeah. writing for your own, your own like self-aggrandizement, uh, you know? Like I don't think that's what, that's what it is, and I can't speak to right. the way. And again, if Rapprzynski is part of this conversation, I would like to literally ask him that. Like, is he trying to impact people? Like, what does he think is the value yeah. of writing again, something like this? Again, I, I hear what you're saying. I don't. If he was, <laughs> it's funny. Like the way we see talk about it in in secular society is. You can say anything free speech as long as it's not harming anybody else. I don't think this article is putting anyone in danger. I don't think it's I don't think this can be called incitement. I think people probably would say maybe things he's written in the past might be in that category. I'm not sure if I think that. And he also never said that this was the most pressing problem facing our community. This is a problem and other blog posts are about other problems. And there's different kinds of musr. There's the musr where you're saying it gently and, and in a nice, kind way. And there's musr that's more harsh and makes people uncomfortable. And maybe we're just not used to hearing that so much nowadays. You take it or leave it. I, I don't under, I don't really see that well, I'm as I'm not trying being... to shut him down. No, no, like, fine. I'm not trying to it's... like, you know, contact the internet and no, say you're, like, you're, It sounds like you're saying you're, the main problem is that people aren't going to take this in a positive way or they're not going to be influenced Well, positively. similar to the CRC thing, right? One of the dangers in rabbis saying statements that I think are not useful is that people won't take rabbis seriously and won't think that what right, they have but, to say but, has any relevance yeah. to their lives. I don't know. And we, you know, we didn't do a, a thorough survey of all different demographics and ages of how they took Robert Brzezinski's blog, how they took that CRC letter. It could very well be people above a certain age or below a certain age, like, didn't didn't read it in the way that you did or, or I did, and I don't know if we can make those assumptions. One thing that I want to say though is kind of a, a it is a critique on the point he was making. He he does say, and this is one of the parts that we read in the beginning, talk speaking about these modern Orthodox Jews that go to secular college and don't really care about Torah so much. Um, it is enough that they observe or try to observe a ritual or two, even though their minds, hearts, values, and life's interests are elsewhere far removed from the world of God, Torah, Mitzvot, Israel, and Jewish destiny. It suffices that they are good people, right? And that's what we, you know, you hear a lot about do whatever you want, as long as it's between consenting adults and nobody's getting hurt right. and stuff. So I think it's very interesting that the the example that he focuses on, I mean, that the Torah gives, but that Rabbi focuses on of where he's not fulfilling the mitzvah the way Avram taught him to is actually a Ben Adam Lechavero yeah. mitzvah. It's that's about treating people, other people well. And so that's actually, for me, the only time where I thought his argument really kind of fell apart a little bit was that, at least in my experience and, and stereotypically the way he's presenting it, the people who kind of like, and you can even say Reform Judaism is, is a prime example where they kind of let go of a lot of the ritual observance, but the thing that they hold on to is the kamocha. treat others as you would want to be treated, treat guests well, treat strangers well. That's what they're all about. And so if, if, th- if that's the crowd that he's critiquing, right. it doesn't fully make sense to say that they're not doing that well, because that is actually the one thing that they do right. do well. Uri, I think that's a, that's a really good point. Again, we'd love to discuss this with Uri Frizanski. Um, but one, one other thing that I, I was thinking about, we discussed earlier kind of the tone and how the tone, I think, bothers a lot of people and definitely is is hard for me to read um and hard to to take as seriously where i feel like you know if he if he approached it a little differently i think it'd be more palatable to a lot of people one of the things that mentions is the story of when lot is living in stone the angels come to visit him to tell him that the city's about to be destroyed and that they're here to save him and mm-hmm. save his family um but the city in general does not encourage people to have visitors so uh, Lot tries to be kind of Avraham-like and engage with visitors, but he tries to kind of like rush them quickly into his house so they don't see that he uh, that he's entertaining guests. And unfortunately, the townspeople, the other people of Stone, they find out. I just want to quote him directly here. 
And when the knock on the door came by the authorities and his enraged townspeople, Lot offered them his daughter's virtue as enticement, parentheses, hashtag Lot to question mark. And to demonstrate that his morals really were compatible with those of Stone, that he really did fit in, and that his professions of piety were all external, just on the surface. I think... So he makes light of the Me Too Right. I, I think, first of all, I spent a long time trying to understand the analogy. Like, the Loat 2 thing, like, uh, is he comparing Loat to the victim? Because he... Because yeah. Lot is not the victim. I don't think here, it was the meant to be read into right. like that. And that's, that's the point, right? It's not just that the analogy is like, oh, why are you getting so... Why would people be triggered, right? But I'm just making an analogy. He's not just making an analogy because the analogy falls apart. What he's doing is trying to kind of poke at people who are going to be, quote unquote, triggered by the use of Me Too. It, it's... And I don't, I don't mean to... And you're falling into the trap. Okay, so... Great. <laughs> no, like, Meaning like, I think what he's... He, he is an adult man who is a rabbi of a congregation of hundreds and hundreds of people and what he's doing in this blog post that is ostensibly about Torah and is also about Musser is make fun of liberals right like that that to me feels yes, so listen, upsetting you can you can say more broadly just the fact that he talks so much about politics and he has blog posts that are purely political with maybe a little bit of Torah Judaism sprinkled in but it's really just about politics I think he's he's allowed to do that. It's free country, this free speech. But like, I think that inherently is divisive, regardless of what his politics are. So clearly, he doesn't mind that, and that's not an issue for him. I think for many people, for me, I, I wouldn't do that if I was a rabbi. Right. He's doing but it. You don't feel like there's something just fundamentally even worse, almost, about like trolling in a Torah post. Right. Like this is ostensibly about Torah. And then he uses it as an excuse to also make fun of liberals. Like it's not even like he's attempting to say, like, look, I have politics, but also here's Torah. Well, he's, uh, yeah, he's making using fun, this as a way he's, to he's make poke, fun of he's people. He's poking fun. He's making light of, of certain things. I think he has a sense of humor. I think there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It obviously turns a lot of people off. Nobody has to read his blog, and also nobody has to go to his shul because Tinek, thank God, has many, many shuls and congregations, and there are plenty to choose from. And again, that doesn't that doesn't inherently excuse any behavior or speech that's out there. And I don't want it to sound like that's what I'm doing. I, I don't know everything he's ever said, and I do know there are some things. If you look at his Wikipedia page, it's actually funny. I, he has a Wikipedia page, and the first thing it says about him is that he's a contra- he's controversial, <laughs> which is funny. I don't. I'm also curious. Like, does he is he proud of that? Does he right. try to counteract that? I we'll don't really think so. I don't. That. I don't think he really minds, and yeah. and I in a way kind of respect that. I don't know. I think I think fundamentally, what kind of upsets me is that I think that there's. Some Something there's a way in which Torah becomes almost degraded this way. And that's a strong word, and maybe I don't mean it as strongly as that, but this idea of sort of like taking something like Torah and someone who their 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 career, their life, not just their career, not just the, the way they get paid, but the choices that they made in their life are about uplifting Torah and trying to show people how Torah is relevant to their lives, is also using that in a way that really <laughs> denigrates it. And I think I think that uh I don't know, that that makes me sad. Yeah. That makes me sad. Okay. I um, hear that. It's funny to, to end on a note of feelings. <laughs> but, you know, that's what we millennials like to do. And I, and I, get, I actually want to be clear. Like, I actually think I really like that we talk about feelings. I think sometimes when we 
try so hard to say like, no, 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 let's kind of like erase feelings and just have like a logical, rational discussion. We're actually lying to ourselves about what the fundamental issues are, because so much of this discussion is often wrapped up in the way it makes people feel. Like Alana Steinhain, when we had her on recently, was talking about this particular thing, how when we try to act like something exists in a vacuum, like Torah exists in a vacuum, halacha could exist in a vacuum without talking about the real world consequences, the people who are impacted by these sort of decisions and these conversations, people who are in the room, you know, we're lying to ourselves about what the reality really is. Right, of course. I mean, even I think even people who say that they don't speak the language of feelings, they, you can't say an opinion without it connecting to your feelings. They're in, intricately um, tied to each other. And maybe we talk about feelings more than uh, the average uh, podcast. I'm not sure. Yeah, nothing to apologize for there. And again, it's not my way of speaking. It's not my style. Right. And I don't want to sound like I'm totally on board with everything he's saying. I just believe that he has a right to say it. People... There are who said he doesn't? No, no, and there are plenty of people who get something from that and want that. So that I'm less convinced about. Okay, I, I think there are, and and they should have well, that listeners type of person to, to go to. <laughs> okay, yeah, actually, and then there should I'm, be the other touchy feely rabbis who who go around hugging people and talk about feelings. That's it's great that they both I don't exist. Think it's a fair contrast. It's not like he's the rational one, and then there's the touchy feely one. And everything and in between. Their, it's their, no, their it's not either point. or. But I'm saying it's not. It's as you just said before. You know, someone's saying that they're only facts and they're not feelings. They're lying to themselves. It's not. It's not one or the other or somewhere in between. Well, it's the same thing with the straw man with with Lo. Just to, just to, to wrap that up, mm-hmm. um, I don't. He he wasn't. I think some people may have thought that he was saying you were either going to be an Avraham or you're going to be a Lot. And he was just saying, this is one thing to be wary of. This is something that can happen. There are people like Lot out there and we have to be careful not to not to become that if our values, if our Jewish values are important to us. I think that's all he was saying. It's not for everybody. Take it or leave it. <laughs> All right. Well, actually, I'm. what I'm really most curious about this week, uh, listeners, for people to please, please, please write in and tell us, because I'm actually really curious about this, are... When you read something like Rebbe Prusansky's piece or other, you know, there are plenty of other rabbis, plenty of other people who, who put out opinion pieces like this. When you read things like this, how do you feel? How does it impact you? Right? And why are you reading it in the first place? Yeah, sure. That's also definitely something important to, to kind of recognize within ourselves why we're reading it. Um, and of course, you know already, but we'll say it again. The best way to be in touch with us is to join the conversation on our Facebook page, Talking Talkless Podcast, but also to shoot us an email, Podcast at gmail.com. And if you have not yet, please rate, review views subscribe all of those things send it to your friends your family again my grandfather is the biggest listener and if he can do it so can yours thanks as always to drive-in productions they are the sponsor of this week's episode thank you to fish for playing alvina volcano <laughs> i really appreciated it and if i see trey on the street i'm gonna thank him personally <laughs> and in honor of that great event we're gonna make fish the official band of talking talkless for this wow. week wow bye everyone bye I'll say-